In the summer of 2014, Katrina Mogul settled down for a quiet evening in her Ferguson, Missouri home. She had decided to watch a documentary on serial killers that someone had recommended to her. Instead of relaxing and going into a deep dive about what she was watching, she was shocked to see her own house on the TV. The home that she had moved into four months earlier had a dark and ominous past. She was living in the home of serial killer Maury Travis, aka the St. Louis Video Strangler, who had murdered as many as 20 women. Maury Travis tied up, tortured, and killed his victims in Katrina's basement, where her two-year-old relative would often play. In the investigation, police found plans that indicated Maury intended to build a torture chamber in the basement to extend the length of his killings and the pain of his victims. The documentary showed crime scene photos of blood-stained walls and carpets. Katrina even recognized the very dining table and chairs seen in the documentary as it was the exact table she had eaten at many times. The landlord had thrown it in. The landlord had thrown in the furniture as part of the deal when purchasing the house. Completely mind-blown, Katrina called her landlord and immediately asked to be let out of her lease. Unfortunately, the landlord was having no parts of it, and it was then that Katrina discovered she was renting from no other than Maury Travis's very own mother. Maury Travis was said to have killed up to 20 to 22 women between 2000 and 2002, most of which were sex workers. Due to their stereotyped line of work, their families usually unaware of where they are and other sex workers hesitate to involve police since their line of work isn't legal. Maury Travis would take these women back to his home and imprison them in his basement for days at a time, making home videos of him torturing them. The video would allow Travis to relive his crimes in detail whenever he wanted. It would be other technological advances that would lead to his downfall though. Travis was one of the first serial killers to be undone by the internet, and in this episode, we will dive deep into how that was done, as well as how far we've come in the use of the internet to help catch the bad guys. Welcome to another episode of the Murder Games Podcast with your host, Danny P. Did you guys miss me? Good. 
uh, yeah, I decided to take a week off. Uh, I wanted, I don't want to say a vacation because I didn't really do anything besides carry out my normal life. But when you do all the work that goes into this and the research, and then I write a report, and which is what I read off to you guys, uh, that takes a lot of work. You wouldn't think that it would, but it sure as hell does. And I've been doing that for however long I've been doing it, 11 11 episodes or 10 episodes that's 10 weeks at least so a little two and a half months in it every single uh every single week i wanted a a week's vacation from it i kind of wanted another one or not even maybe a week but a little bit longer Uh, but this is a memorial day weekend so i got a lot of crap to do around the house um, to get ready for that and to celebrate it, I guess I'm not really much of a celebratory person, but uh, I do have a nice extended weekend, so I want to enjoy that as much as possible. So I wanted to uh, get this out to you guys. Um, and if you're mad at me for it, I'm sorry. Uh, I just hope that you understand. But um, I will try to continue to do the every Monday um, uh, episodes not murder mystery Monday, like some people call it, or, or whatever like that. But it's just the murder games Monday, I guess. I guess I just, I guess that's what I'll call it, murder games Monday. Let's go. Uh, so if you uh, listen to the prelude, I guess it's called. Um, this episode is about Maury Travis. Uh, I'd never heard of him until a few weeks ago. I can't remember how I found out whether it's something that someone had told me or I just came across in passing researching another case or something. But um, this one I found pretty crazy from a little overview that I did get of it. Um, So I wanted to um, make that my next case. Uh, This guy, uh, this will be a two-parter, by the way. I know I said I wasn't going to do any more two-parters and all this other stuff after a you know a four-parter um a few episodes back i finished that but i've just found a lot of information and you know you got i know you guys like it so i want to bring it to you um this will be a two-parter like i said so without further ado let's get into it um like i said maury travis was born october 25th in 1965 in st louis missouri three days before the completion of the Gateway Arch. Anybody knows what the Gateway Arch, for all my listeners outside of the U.S., do a quick Google uh, um, a Google search and look up the, uh, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri, and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. I don't know how the hell they built it, but it's pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I kind of want to... I used to want to be an architect, and when I was in middle school going into high school they we got to select some of our classes and architecture was one of them well i selected it and then when i got my schedule for high school it wasn't on there so i was kind of pissed and that was the end of my architecture career so thank you to whoever the hell did that and from what i know there's a lot of math involved so i wouldn't have made it anyway because i hate math um, at least the complicated stuff Um, So I probably wouldn't have been able to do all that. But anyways, uh, Travis grew up in the Carr Square public housing complex just northwest of downtown St. Louis uh, in Missouri. 
Travis was born during the height of the civil rights movement in a city where there were racial tensions between white and black communities. I still feel like there's a lot of that these days, just everywhere. And it's really uh, discouraging to see that, what has it been, 400 and some years since the beginning of slavery or since the end of slavery. And we still have all this racial bullshit that still goes on. I, I don't understand it. I just do not understand how someone can be racist. A white person, a black person, a yellow person, red person, whatever color you are. We all have eyes. We all have arms and legs. We all have the genitalia of, uh, you know, the male or female, spe uh, um, not species, but gender. Um, there's nothing different besides the fucking color of your skin. That is all that it is. And it is stupid to treat someone differently based upon that you could know if you got to know that person they could be the most sweetest most innocent person and your complete best friend one of my best friends is black and i'm not even like using that as a uh a, a thing for me to say that i'm not racist i'm not i don't think i'm racist i, I have no uh bias towards any you know color of skin uh, if you're a piece of shit, you're a piece of shit. I don't care what color you are. If you're a great person, you're a great person. I don't care what color you are. None of that stuff matters to me. Racism has to stop. Uh, unfortunately, I know it never will, but I'll never, uh, I'll never stop preaching, for lack of a better word, you know, to racism coming to an end. But anyway, uh, racist opinions in the real estate market made it extremely difficult for black families like Maury, Maury Travis's to escape from an impoverished background. Numerous studies have shown that poverty, segregation, and income inequality led to more violent crime as police forces are typically overworked and undereducated. In 1975, when Travis was just 10 years old, his family moved to a house in Ferguson, Missouri just north of downtown St. Louis. And by all accounts, Travis was a seemingly ordinary boy. When he was 13, Travis's parents divorced and his childhood didn't seem to have any signs of being abused or any experience of any other situations that would lead uh, to you know him doing what the hell he did later in life. Yeah, so I didn't find anything that stated he was abused. He was exposed to you know, hardcore BDSM pornography, like a lot of serial killers and, you know, all this other stuff. I didn't find anything that he had a troubled childhood. So it's in this case, it's not um, uh, nature. No, it's not nurture. This one is nature. If anybody believes in that, if you don't know what that is, a lot of people believe that um, a lot of people who become serial killers and who kill people, um, it all originates from how they were raised, which is the the nurture of their their parenting or their parents um, versus someone who grew up just normal like this guy and decided to go out and do all this stuff. And somehow that's nature um, just somehow became privy in his head that he wanted to go harm people. And one thing led to another, and he ended up doing a lot more than that. Uh, one of his old neighbors remembered him as quiet, respectful, and sometimes moved there along without being asked and even taught them uh, to use an electric hedge. 
She said that he was a pleasant child with a soft heart and later stated, I don't believe he would kill a fly. Mari attended McClure High School, but several classmates said they could not even remember him, that if he appeared in any pictures in the yearbook, they wouldn't even know who he was. Damn. That's not... I mean, some people like to, you know, be under the radar. and I mean, I guess nowadays I do, but as a teenager, like, you want the acceptance of people and you want people to like you and and want to, you know, be friends and all this other stuff. But I know a lot of people who probably flew under the radar of most people um, in high school. And I tried to, um, I know a couple of people specifically that I would still be friends with regardless of if they were, you know, not the cool type because I'm not a piece of shit. I mean, I guess I kind of am, but I'm not at the same time. Anyways, uh, the only person who seems to remember him from his teenage years is Sue Hannon, a retired English teacher at McClure High who said that she immediately recognized his name and picture when he was arrested. She said Travis was a student in her basic English class, which was for students who failed earlier English courses. I will admit when I was in middle school, I did not care, as most kids do, and I failed a reading class or something. I would sleep in the back of the class. I just, I literally did not care. It was reading. I thought, why the hell do I need a class in reading? I know how to read. But as a result, I had to go into a, a intermediate reading class, which um, was kind of for you know, quote unquote, no offense, the dumb kids uh, who like may, maybe had learning disabilities. I was that I literally got an F. I failed it. And, you know, when I got when I got in there, I just was like, I got to get the hell out of here. And, you know, obviously I just completely succeeded in that. But uh, Sue described Travis as, quote, very quiet and withdrawn, incredibly, incredibly quiet for a teenager. Even the quiet ones could be noisy sometimes, but not him, end quote. Travis would then graduate in 1985 when he was 20 years old. So he, like, fucked up and, and failed a few times and got held back. And after that, he served two years in the Army Reserve working as a medical and dental assistant. Not bad, not bad. That's probably should have stayed in that, you know, for his entire adult life, but we all make you know, decisions with regret. He also held a variety of jobs with trucking companies in the area and volunteered at a local nursing home. In 1987, at age 22, Travis enrolled in Morris Brown College in Atlanta, where Maury Travis became computer literate. So I would assume that he didn't grow up in a house that had, you know, technology around and, uh, you know, definitely not a computer. I don't even remember when computers... Uh, I guess became, I don't want to say public, but like all the rage for people to have them. I'm not really sure. I might have to do a Google search on that one. But um, it was also in 1987 that Maury became addicted to crack cocaine and began his long history of trouble with the law. In March of 1988, he came home to Ferguson on spring break from Morris Brown College. And over the course of eight days, Travis would rob five shoe stores in North and West St. Louis County for cash to fund what he would later say was a $300 day cocaine, quote unquote, habit. Now, 
when people say that uh, with drugs, don't do drugs, man. Just don't do it. Weed, marijuana, have at it. I don't, I don't, that doesn't bother me. I don't do it. Uh, I just, it's because of my job, I'm not allowed to do it. Um, but all that other stuff, man, go find another vice. Go, go to the gym, go run, go read, go play video games. I don't know. Don't get caught up in drugs because that shit can lead you down to a really bad path and can fuck up your whole life. Um, but he didn't make the right decision, and, you know, this is what happens. Travis was arrested based on the description of his vehicle, but even the detective seemed surprised that such a seemingly nice boy was capable of these crimes. He described his encounter with Travis saying, quote, He was respectful and quiet and reserved. He wasn't your typical type of criminal, end quote. As a young 23-year-old man, Travis pled guilty to five counts of robbery and armed criminal action on January 19, 1989. He testified that he used a plastic gun and he was so strung out on crack that he barely remembered the robberies. At his sentence hearing, St. Louis County Circuit Judge Stephen Goldman reviewed letters of support for Travis and called the robberies, quote, an aberration in character resulting from the drug habit, end quote. Among the letters the court received was one from former U.S. Representative William L. Clay. In the letter, he said, quote, I have known Mr. Travis and his family for a number of years, and I feel he is deserving of special consideration in this matter. Since January 1988, Mr. Travis has conducted himself in such a manner as to pose no threat to society. I am pleading that he be given leniency and probation with the condition of voluntary service at a charitable community agency. End quote. After Travis is arrested for multiple murders, Representative Clay said that he does not remember uh, Maury Travis or his family, and he has sent thousands of similar letters during his career. So basically, it's either... He didn't want to associate himself with uh, Maury Travis after all this shit happened, or it was one of those things that uh, was mailed in that had a printed signature. Like you probably get something in the, in the mail all the time, you know. Hey, apply for this credit card. Sign yours truly. Blah 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 blah. So it's a printed signature, and that person has no effing idea that that was even sent to you. So it was probably it was either one of those two things, in my opinion. So although he had multiple letters of support, and with Travis's polite demeanor, demeanor Travis was still convicted on all five counts of robbery and ar uh, armed criminal action. Judge Stephen Goldman sentenced Maury to 15 years, a supposed lenient uh, sentence for three years for each robbery. Travis was moved to Farmington Correctional Center about 70 miles south of St. Louis, on Janu uh, July 5th, 1989, and was about four months from his 24th birthday. So he had to spend his 24th birthday in jail. Um, I recommend to not spend any birthday in jail or any day in jail, you know, but I guess do as you please. Uh, we all make our own decisions. Just two months into his 15-year sentence, he wrote a three-page letter to the judge begging him to reconsider his sentence. He wrote, quote, Daily and hourly, 
Also, at any given moment, I think about taking my life. The conditions here are excruciatingly tormenting, to say the least. Staying in my cell and crying myself to sleep most every night will not help. But it's so very hard to believe that this has happened to me. This whole situation is horrid and phantasmic. If you weren't for such a caring cell, if it wasn't for such a caring cellmate, I'm very sure I'd have committed suicide after my first day here in this institution. End quote. The letter goes on to describe rapes, cramped living conditions, and the use of drugs. Though Travis did not indicate whether he had been a victim of sexual or physical assault while in prison, but he asked that his sentence be replaced by a 120 to 180 day shock imprisonment. For anybody that doesn't know what that was, I had to Google it myself. Uh, shock imprisonment or shock incarceration is a short-term imprisonment that is like a military boot camp. Well, if that's the case, sign me up, pal, because I was in the military, and when I came back from boot camp, after about a week, I wanted to go back. I don't know why, but it was. I hated it when I was there, but when I when I came home, I was like, I miss doing hundreds of push-ups and hundreds of sit-ups a day. I miss running constantly. I miss just getting my ass kicked by, you know, the drill sergeants. But um, I guess that's what he was hoping to get out of. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure prison was pretty bad back then. Um, it's probably even worse now, but it was often um, reserved for nonviolent first-time offenders who are young or minors. And uh, also in his letter, he wrote, quote, Sir, you are my last hope. Please give me another chance in society. Please, end quote. While in prison, Travis worked in the Farmington Correctional Center's janitorial and food service area. So basically, he worked in the kitchen as a, I don't know, maybe not a cook, but he worked in the kitchen. He was given 13 conduct violations during his stay, but according to a spokesman for the Missouri Department of Corrections, None of them were significant. It's not clear if his letter begging the judge for leniency had any impact on his sentence or not, but Travis was granted parole in 1994, June 1994, after five years and three months behind bars. He was now 28 years old, and he moved into a duplex just east of Ferguson. A neighbor named Reverend Linda Harrison lived next door to him, and although they shared a common wall, she said that she had never had any problems with him while he lived there. She did recall one time doing laundry in the basement of the building, and Travis startled her while coming down the stairs. He was very apologetic, and from then on out, he announced his presence whenever entering the basement. He was still struggling with his addiction to crack, and in February of 1998, Travis returned to prison for violating parole by possessing drugs. He would then get another year before being released in January 1999. When released, Travis bought and moved into a house at 1001 Ford Drive in Ferguson, Missouri, and worked several food service jobs in St. Louis, using his experience from working in the prison cafeteria. Travis was arrested again at age 35 in November of 2000, again for drug possession and violating parole. Travis served a four-month sentence and was released in March 2001. I mean, you would think that 
you know, violating parole a second time would warrant a harsher punishment than the first, but Missouri guidelines are vague, or they were vague, and often left uh, it up to the discretion of the parole board. At this point, Travis had been incarcerated a total of almost seven years. I think that was about a fifth of his life. Uh, after he was released again, Travis committed crimes that would make the shoe store robberies look like child's play. He also served time and was given multiple chances to blend back into society and pursue a normal life. Instead, he couldn't ignore a growing lust for killing, thus began a two-year-long murder spree that would claim the lives of as many as 20 women. In the late 90s, Travis started bringing sex workers back to his home and filming his in interactions with them. He would record them smoking crack and engaging in consensual sex before letting them leave. It's not exactly sure when Maury Travis made his first kill, but he documented and narrated the act on a VHS camcorder. Does anybody remember VHSs? I don't even know what it stands for. Video home, video home system? Video home system? That kind of sounds right, but... I'm not sure how everyone, how old everyone is that's listening, but I'm sure quite a few of you, you know, probably remember VHSs. Those were the uh, giant cassettes um, that we watched movies and stuff on, or you could even record on them, as you'll see in this episode. Um, I think we would use them to record um, TV shows when I was a kid that I wanted to watch uh, during the weekends or something like that, but. We didn't really use them a lot, but I did have a lot of VHSs, you know, coming up as a kid. Uh, Travis recorded himself wrapping his belt around an unknown naked woman's neck. Then he pulled and choked her until her body went limp. limp. Once he knew that she was dead, Travis panned over the body with a video camera and said, quote, This is kill number one. First kill was 19 years old. Name? I don't know. First kill was nice, end quote. Police were never able to identify this victim, and her body was never found. Travel, Travis would label this tape Wedding Day. He recorded an hour and a half footage from a wedding ceremony as cover before using the rest of the tape to document his rape and torture and murder. I don't even know where, where would... Did he just go to some wedding and, hey, let me record you guys because I'm going to use this later to uh, you know, record me killing somebody? Or was that a, I don't know where he, I don't know. I'll be interested to know about that. While recording his victims, Travis often told them to engage in bizarre rituals. He would force them to dance in white clothes and wear sunglasses with the lenses blacked out so they couldn't see. The women... Uh, were still unaware of the danger they were in, as Travis would bind them with ropes and handcuffs and cover their eyes with duct tape. He then dragged the women downstairs to the basement where he would imprison them for days at a time. He would then shackle them to a beam and record himself sexually assaulting the women, torturing them with a stun gun before deciding to strangle them to death. The torment wasn't only limited to physical torture, Travis would verbally abuse his victims as well. He would then shackle them to a beam and record himself sexually assaulting the women, torturing them with a stunning gun before deciding to strangle them to death. The torment wasn't only limited to physical torture. 
Travis would verbally abuse his victims as well. He would demand that they call him master and belittle them for coming home with a stranger and for their crack addictions. Uh, homie, you have a crack addiction, so you're a hypocrite. Jackass. In one video scene, Travis told his victim, quote, I can't hear you. What are you saying? Say it clear. End quote. The unknown woman responded, quote, You are the master. It pleases me to serve you. End quote. Travis then forced her to repeat that over and over while crying. Sometimes his tone shifted dramatically. He'd ask the woman softly, you, you sorry? Then the unknown woman would reply, yes. Then he'd respond, you sorry about what? His victim would then murmur, everything. Travis suddenly got angry and scolded her for getting in a car with a man she didn't know. He asked her if she wanted to say something to her kids, and the woman told the children that she was sorry. Travis went on to ask the woman who she was raising or who was raising her kids. She explained that she was, and then Travis, with disgust for her, as clear as day, told her she wasn't raising her kids. He said, quote, You over here on your back smoking crack. You ain't going home tomorrow. I'm going to keep you for about a week. End quote. So he's becoming um, quite the jackass uh, with this first kill. Um, I mean, I guess he's letting out all his all his inner demons and just becoming what. Well, he, obviously he is becoming a serial killer, but you know he's just uh, letting it all take over him. On April first, April Fools, two thousand one. Less than a month after Travis's release from prison, Reverend, and I could not get this name right, so bear with me if you know who it is. Reverend Inika Wanguzi was woken at 3 a.m. by a phone call. Still half asleep, the Reverend recognized the caller as Alyssa Greenwade. Alyssa Greenwade had experienced a tough life as she suffers from addiction to crack and turned to sex work to pay for her addiction. However, the Reverend knew she just needed a way out. Reverend Wanguzi said, quote, She felt trapped, you know, and she knew that what was happening with her was wrong. It was not good for her. She knew all of this. She what she didn't know was how bad what she didn't know was how to get out of it. End quote. The Reverend had known Alyssa for about a year as they met through their community outreach program. Alyssa was excited to tell the Reverend about a man she had just met and wanted the Reverend to talk to this new date. When the man came to the phone, he told the Reverend, quote, You've been really nice to her, but you don't have to worry about her tonight because she's with me and she's safe. End quote. Can you take a guess who that was? Unfortunately, nine hours later, the police would find Alyssa's body in a ditch in the Washington Park neighborhood of East St. Louis partially clothed and strangled. Alyssa's death was reported in only four sentences in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch crime section, stated, The body of an unidentified woman was discovered Sunday afternoon in a ditch along 60th Street and Caseyville Avenue in Washington Park. Authorities said an autopsy disclosed that the woman had been strangled. 
The victim was described as black and in her mid to late 20s, 5 foot 3 and weighing 110 pounds. She was wearing a gray t-shirt dress. That's all I could say. That's all the information they had on her. Reverend Wanguzi cooperated with police, knowing the man she spoke to on the phone was likely the killer, but she didn't know the name and had no additional information. Maury Travis's next victim would be Teresa Wilson, another sex worker who grew up in St. Louis, and as a child, she was often left alone by her parents in the evenings. Lisa Young Gibson, a childhood friend, said Teresa had independent streak, which often turned into a recipe for trouble. Recalling a time they took a bus to Six Flags, St. Louis, and Eureka, they ended up missing the last bus home in high school. Teresa wasn't into hard drugs or alcohol, but she smoked some weed, and but was not excessive. At age 17, Teresa became pregnant and dropped out of high school to take care of her daughter, Chastity. Lisa Young Gibson said, quote, She was an absolutely great mother. She was very attentive, very strict with her. She pushed good grades, good behavior. She always dressed her well, end quote. Unfortunately, Teresa started smoking crack, and like Elisa Greenwood, she turned to sex work when her addiction became too expensive. By the early 90s, she was arrested several times for sex work, drug possession, shoplifting, and theft. Most of the time, she skipped court appearances, and her daughter was often seen sitting on a bench or wandering on a corner waiting for her mother to return from a date with a client. Teresa's daughter's chastity was placed in a children's home when she was about 10 or 11 years old. Not sticking out like a sore thumb and being under the radar of almost everyone, Bill Morrow had operated a bicycle shop on Broadway for 12 years. When Teresa went missing, he had seen Wilson and other sex workers passing uh, by his shop, usually all hours of the day and night. Once he had hired Teresa to work in his shop, but fired her after only a week when she stole, forged, and cast checks from the shop to feed her crack addiction. Bill Morrow said that Teresa would disappear for weeks at a time and then reappear, saying that she had been in jail or in drug rehabilitation. So no one was really alarmed or thought to file a missing persons report when she went missing in May 2001. That day, Maury Travis picked up Teresa along Broadway, asking her for her services. He then brought her to his home in Ferguson, and the two likely smoked crack, and then uh, Travis bounded Teresa and then held her captive in his basement where he tortured her and filmed it on his VHS camcorder. Maury Travis would go on to strangle Teresa to death. He left her body in West Alton, Missouri, just north of St. Louis between the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, roughly 30 miles where he disposed of Alyssa Greenwade's body. On May 15, 2001, 45 days after Alyssa's body was discovered, police found Teresa's body. She was completely unidentifiable, and Detective Jenna Walters said that there was nothing to identify. There was no clothing, no ID, or purse. No one had reported a missing person, and the body was so badly de decomposed that police were unable to lift fingerprints. The only way police were able to identify the body was from a dental plate extracted from the victim's mouth. The plate was inscribed with the name Wilson. 
And so the body count was starting to rise, and it would continue to do so until Travis made several errors that would not immediately put him in prison, but put the area of St. Louis on high alert. On May 23, 2001, eight days after police found the body of Teresa Wilson, another body was found in the East St. Louis area. The woman's body had markings of bondage and strangulation. What was most notable were tire marks that were visible on her legs between her knee and ankle, indicating she had been ran over by a car. Police were able to identify the body as 46-year-old Betty James, who was another sex worker. A month later, on June 29, 2001, another body was found in West Alton, 16 feet from where the body of Teresa Wilson was dumped by Travis. This woman was 36-year-old Verona Thompson, another sex worker who was found to have died by strangulation six days after she went missing. So if you're keeping count, this made four prostitutes that were murdered inside of a two-month span. The police set up a multi-jurisdiction task force of investigators from the Illinois State Police, City of St. Louis Homicide, and St. Uh, Charles County Sheriff's Office. Several similarities in the murders were compared and found that each victim had the same profession and that, that the way their bodies were disposed of, including evidence of bondage and torture. It was decided that one individual was likely responsible for the deaths of these four women and that St. Louis had a serial killer on their hands. As the police were starting their task force and launching a coordinated investigation, you would think Maury Travis would lay low. Instead, he found himself in the middle of a domestic dispute, which could have exposed his torture and murderous reign on the area. On July 4, 2001, Maury Travis's neighbor seen uh, a naked woman running and screaming from his house. The police were called to the scene, and he was arrested for allegedly assaulting the woman, who he said he had picked up at a local club. Travis claimed that she had drugged his drink, and when he woke, he found her going through his wallet. When he grabbed her, she ran naked from the house, and after it was all said and done, neither one would press charges on the other. Friends and co-workers of Travis had said that his 2000 black Mitsubishi Eclipse was his pride and joy. I can't remember exactly what those look like. Actually, I do. That, that was one of my favorite cars as well. I think, um, well, I don't think the Fast and Furious had came out quite yet, but um, the Mitsubishi Eclipse was one of my favorite cars back in the day. So if I had one, that would have probably been my pride and joy as well. A childhood friend of his repeatedly said that Travis didn't have a violent bone in his body. They said they once saw another man hit Travis in a bar, and Travis did not strike back. Those who knew Travis were surprised to find he would bring prostitutes to his home. Crazy enough, Travis even had several girlfriends over this period of time of his murder spree, and the friends said that he would typically go for smart girls. One of his girlfriend's mothers said that she could never have imagined that he was a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, saying that he always seemed so happy and laid back, and he was a perfect gentleman. Neighbors also said that he lived a quiet life and could be seen cleaning his gutters, mowing his lawn, and even working on his car. Co-workers of Travis's from the restaurant at the Mayfair Hotel in downtown St. Louis said that Travis 
even taught him how to wax his car and take care of the engine. I'm assuming like change your oil, you know, um, refill the washer fluid and, uh, you know, check your, um, your coolant and all that other stuff, which isn't hard, but you know, some people want car savvy. I'm not car savvy, but I know how to do those few things. While working in the restaurant during the summer of 2001, the co-worker unknowingly gained an insight into Travis's double life. He told Travis about a friend whose car was stolen and later found burnt in East St. Louis. The co-worker later said Murray told him, Maury told him that East St. Louis was a good place to dump things because there's not many police around. It was quite risky for Travis to talk to a colleague about his double life, but his mistakes were piling up. Travis had already gotten away with at least four murders, and he was likely starting to feel very confident and invincible. The more he successfully killed, the more confidence he gained to the point where he thought he was unable to be caught and wasn't being as nonchalant as uh, you know, when he first started murdering. In the summer of 2001, Travis made a boo-boo that would eventually come back to bite him in the ass. On October 25, 2001, one month after police discovered the body of Verona uh, Thompson and started their investigation into the possibility of a serial killer, Travis's next victim was found naked and strangled to death. The body was identified as Yvonne Cruz, who to him was just another sex worker. Two weeks later, on October 8, 2001, police found the body of a sixth sex worker named Brenda Beasley, who was also strangled and left naked in a field. These last two murders were different from the previous killings because semen-like fluids were found on both bodies, which matched and confirmed what police had suspected, that there was a serial killer on the loose. This was a mistake for Travis to make, but it didn't lead to his arrest immediately. Finding matching DNA on the bodies was a huge win for investigators, but surprisingly, there were no matches in the combined DNA index system ran by the FBI. The national version of the database was implemented in 1998, but Travis had been imprisoned well before Missouri started collecting DNA from convicted felons in 1989. As soon as police made the discovery of confirming the existence of a serial killer, the killing suddenly stopped, just out of nowhere. No more bodies were being found every six to eight weeks, and detectives have thought for sure they'd find another victim by Thanksgiving. But after Brenda Beasley was found on October 8th, there was nothing. Police had several theories as to why their murders had stopped, and for one, September 11th, uh, September 11th 2001, a.k.a. 9-11, had completely changed the mood that day. I don't know how old you guys are, if you guys remember that, but I'll never forget it. I was in middle school sitting in keyboarding class, and teacher came in and turned on the TV, and all the thing, the only thing that you could see was, uh, I think the first tower was down, and we watched it, um, you know, for the rest of the period. And I think we might have left early that day, but. I'm pretty sure we got to watch, you know, when the second plane hit the towers. And um, I that was a huge, huge day in history. Unfortunately, it wasn't a good day, but it was definitely um, 
a huge day to where it possibly could have, you know, changed the heart of, you know, bad guys. Um, you know, the police seemed, it seemed impossible that a national tragedy would give a serial killer a change of heart, but police thought it was possible that the killer enlisted in the military, which would have been a better way to satisfy the lust for killing. Now, you would think a serial killer would possibly go into the military because, you know, you, especially after that, you get sent to Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, you kill as, mo- as many motherfuckers as you want, and no one will bat an eye. You'd be, you'd be considered a hero. But another theory was that the killer was arrested for an unrelated crime, and it just so happened to be your first assumption is usually the right assumption. On November 29th, 2001, at 36 years old, Travis returned to prison for violating a parole for a third time on a drug possession charge. You would think three strikes you're out, but this isn't this isn't the case. You know, you, you would think at this point his DNA should have been collected and cataloged in the FBI's national database. His DNA would have been connected to the bodies of Yvonne Cruz and Brenda Beasley, but for whatever reason, it was never it was never uh, taken. DNA collection is a system that requires the coordination of many separate branches and divisions of law enforcement. A forensic investigation found that thousands of incarcerated prisoners do not have their DNA cataloged. There are many cases where prisoners refuse to give DNA samples just to kind of probably help them out themselves for future crimes once they get out. Or authorities simply just don't make sure that it gets done regardless of the prisoner's behavior. Travis was released in March 2002 after only serving a little over three months and returned to his house on Ford Drive. While Travis was in prison, police did find three more bodies, but they had been dead for a lengthy amount of time, past the point where forensics were able to even identify them. By May 2002, the police had hit a wall. There had been no recent killings and Travis's DNA had no match in the national system. Bill Smith, a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, did not forget about the unsolved murders of the nine women, feeling they deserved to be remembered as more than just sex workers or murder victims. Smith wrote a long article profiling the life of Teresa Wilson. The article explored her positive relationship with her daughter and friends and how she desperately tried to overcome her addiction to crack. It ran on the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And on May 19, 2002, the article forced the readers to view the victims as real people, but Maury Travis enjoyed that his crimes were gaining notoriety when the story ran. Bill Smith had no idea that this road to empathy for the murdered women of St. Louis would provoke a response from the jackass serial killer himself. The article eventually led Travis out of the shadows and as well to his arrest. The article fed into his ego, and Travis could not ignore it as his response left a newfound trail back to him in a way that he could never imagine. Something police had rarely used to catch criminals, but is highly used today. The most used thing in our lives these days, aka the internet. And this will conclude episode one of Maury Travis a.k.a. the Jackass VHS St. Louis 
strangler, killer, whatever you want to call him. So yeah, basically, um, just to wrap this up short, this guy who didn't have a, he didn't have a bad childhood from what I could find, grew up to you know develop a cocaine habit or crack uh, cocaine habit. You know, he would go in and out of jail numerous times, being locked up for months at a time, years at a time. You know, he never learned his lesson, you know, and his uh, his lust for wanting to kill somebody grew so intense that he decided to do so and would lure, not necessarily lure, but he would ask prostitutes for their services, take them back to his house, most likely smoke crack, and then, you know, basically torture them, strangle them and murder them and, and do all kinds of things to them. And it all led up to, you know, I think it was six victims at this time. Uh, and no one knew who it was. The police could not identify who it was. Uh, and they came close, you know, with the whole semen thing. But DNA didn't have um, Maurice Travis in their database. So that that wasn't... Um, it wasn't a viable option. So here in part one, that's what we've learned. And in part two, we'll learn how the internet can be your friend. And, uh, you know, will in most of the time be used against you to catch you if you ever do anything, you know, this outrageous. And, you know, like I said, we'll learn that um, on the next episode. So thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you guys, um, you know, stay safe out there. And always remember, no one is a true winner in the games of murder.